This program is brought to you by the Idaho Humanities Council with funding provided by the National Endowment for the Humanities. With us today is Marie Stango from Idaho State University. Within Philadelphia, the abolitionist movement grows out of a few institutions. Most importantly, churches in Philadelphia and in other free Black communities throughout the U.S. become centers of political engagement and debate. Within Philadelphia, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones established what's known as Mother Bethel African Methodist Episcopal, or AME, Church in 1794. And Mother Bethel and the AME Church in general grow quite rapidly. Um, much like I was talking about um, in other American cities like Newport, um, the AME Church had grown out of a free African society that was established around the time of the American Revolution. And again, these societies provided uh, community support for free Black individuals, and in the case of Philadelphia, support for individuals who were fleeing from slavery. So fugitives from slavery. Um, this community organization was crucial. They responded to racial violence, to racism, discrimination. Um, they started to establish resources for Black communities in the United States. So again, um, things like clothing donation, help finding jobs, um, Education was a huge part, part of this too. In most parts of the United States uh, in the South, enslaved or free African-Americans were legally prohibited from learning how to read or write. So many African-Americans were not uh, legally allowed to learn how to read or write. And one of the things that these community organizations do is establish schools. Within Philadelphia, there is a free Black middle class that emerges. Um, so individuals like James Fortin, um, who was a sail maker, um, so ships, sailing ships. Um, he was one of the wealthiest individuals within Philadelphia, white or Black. Um, there were other individuals, including uh, Robert Purvis, uh, who rose to prominence within these communities in Philadelphia. So it was a really thriving middle class that emerges kind of by the 1820s and 1830s in Philadelphia. Um, so propertied Black men in Pennsylvania had the right to vote. If they could meet the property qualification, they were able to vote. But in 1838, Pennsylvania amends its constitution. And when it amends its constitution, it takes away voting rights for black men. So black men had the right to vote in Pennsylvania and then it was taken away in 1838. Uh, the Pennsylvania constitution inserted the word white into the voting qualifications when the new constitution was ratified. And Robert Purvis, along with um, other uh, members of this Black middle class in Philadelphia, petitioned the legislature not to do this, to not take away their vo voting rights. Um, and unfortunately, they're unsuccessful in getting their voting rights restored. Also within this middle class community, 
in Philadelphia, we start to see some of the first integrated abolitionist societies emerge. So as I mentioned when I was talking about Liberian colonization, um, just because a, um, say, a white uh, evangelical from Pennsylvania supported abolition did not always mean that they supported racial equality or integration. So strangely enough, many abolitionist organizations were segregated organizations. The Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, founded in 1833, was an integrated organization. It had both white members and Black members. Um, so this interracial group included some of the most important abolitionists of the antebellum period, um, Lucretia Mott and Angelina Grimke, as well as James Fortin's wife, Charlotte, and his daughters, Margareta, Sarah, and Harriet. And the Pennsylvania, or sorry, the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society um, petitioned Congress to abolish slavery. They raised money to aid poor African-Americans and supported fugitive slaves. And this was actually some of the first political activism by women in the United States. Um, and again, it was this integrated group that does this political work of advocating for civil rights uh, as well as abolition. Many of these women had been highly educated in some of these schools that were established by institutions like the Free African Society during the Revolutionary Era. Um, one of these women, Sarah Maps Douglas, is worth talking about in detail. Um, Sarah Maps Douglas did a lot in her life. She was an educator who eventually ran a school for African-American girls in Philadelphia. She was one of the founders of the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. She established a female literary society, which was there to help um, educate and um, promote reading and writing among free women of color. Um, this organization, the Literary Society, also um, wrote original works of literature as well as artistic works. So Sarah Maps Douglas um, was very interested in botany and the sciences and some of her watercolor paintings, like for instance, a watercolor of a butterfly that appeared in a friendship album of one of these other um, women, middle-class women in Philadelphia, uh, was one of the first signed works done by an African-American female artist. So Sarah Mapps Douglas um, is, again, highly involved in this middle-class community in Philadelphia, and is making these arguments about the equality of the races as well as the equality of the sexes. The American Anti-Slavery Society, which was founded in 1833 as well, uh, is perhaps better known than the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. And that's in part, I think, because the American Anti-Slavery Society was founded by William Lloyd Garrison. And William Lloyd Garrison was a crucial white abolitionist. Um, and when many Americans think about abolitionism and this history in the United States, they think of William Lloyd Garrison. 
He was one of the more radical white abolitionists who advocated for an immediate end to slavery rather than gradual emancipation. And Garrison is also known for his newspaper, The Liberator, um, which circulated abolitionist stories, um, abolitionist news about meetings, uh, was a site of political organizing for the abolitionist movement. Um, initially, Garrison had supported the idea of colonization in Liberia. But he started to change his mind after spending some time in Baltimore among Black abolitionists, uh, perhaps most importantly, William Watkins. And it was through these conversations with Watkins that Garrison became convinced that the colonization society was not an abolitionist society, that it did not support an end to slavery, but rather uh, he believed the ACS supported the institution of slavery. So again, Douglas is perhaps a member of the more radical wing of abolitionism calling for an immediate end to slavery. And he's deeply influenced by black abolitionists, including uh, William Watkins, James Fortin, Robert Purvis. Um, all of these individuals help Garrison um, establish his, his politics. Abolitionism was controversial even within the North. Most whites did not support an immediate end to the institution of slavery. They tended to support gradual emancipation or colonization. So even Harriet Beecher Stowe, who we often think of as an abolitionist, is somebody who's better described as a colonizationist. So Stowe was a white woman from Connecticut who's best known as the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was first serialized in 1851 and then published in two volumes in 1852, uh, wrote this very important novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which convinced a lot of maybe more moderate Northerners to oppose the institution of slavery. Um, Stowe's politics are more closely aligned with the colonizationists. And you can even see this in Uncle Tom's Cabin itself. If you think about the ending of Uncle Tom's Cabin, the novel ends with the free Black characters living in Liberia, not living in the United States. Um, so that novel ends with this idea that free Black Americans should live somewhere outside of the United States. Um, and this reflects Stowe's own political leanings um, concerning the institution of slavery. Instead of calling Uncle Tom's Cabin an abolitionist novel, we might more properly call it a colonizationist novel. Another example of the limited support abolitionism had, even within the North, is the story of Pennsylvania Hall. Pennsylvania Hall was built in Philadelphia um, in 1837 into 1838 as a temple of free discussion. It was a space where lectures were held. It was funded by the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society. And the idea was is that it was a meeting place where people could exchange ideas, particularly about causes like abolitionism, like women's suffrage. Um, and it took $40,000 to build this structure. 
Well, very shortly after it opened on May 14th of 1838, um, it came under fire, literally. So on May 14th of 1838, uh, there were a number of speeches held at Pennsylvania Hall, um, as well as a wedding. The wedding of Angelina Grimke, who was a white female abolitionist, and Theodore Dwight Weld, who was also a white abolitionist. So Angelina Grimke and Theodore Dwight Weld hold their marriage there. Um, the Grimkeys, uh, so Angelina Grimke and her sister Sarah Moore Grimke, were daughters of a wealthy enslaver from South Carolina. And the two sisters had converted to Quakerism uh, and became abolitionists and moved to the North. So Grimke was a white abolitionist woman marrying a white abolitionist man. However, there were Black Americans in attendance at the wedding. And this idea of having interracial attendees was objectionable to many of the people living in Philadelphia at the time. So again, she's she's a white woman marrying another white man, but because she has African-Americans in attendance at her wedding, it raises the concern or the fear or the worry about interracial marriage. And a lot of Philadelphians at the time opposed that idea of interracial marriage. She is actually giving a speech in Pennsylvania Hall um, when a mob is attacking Pennsylvania Hall. Um, so the mob starts to gather the night of May 16th. Uh, it continues uh, to roar outside during her speech. And then Pennsylvania Hall is burned uh, the night of May 17th uh, in, in a riot. The firemen in Philadelphia refused to put the flames out. And the next few nights, uh, there is rioting and Black institutions throughout Philadelphia are attacked. An orphanage for Black children is burned. Um, the uh, Bethel AME church that I was talking about earlier is attacked. Uh, thankfully, it was saved by a guard of citizens who refused to let it be burned. Um, but I think these incidents in Philadelphia, which we often think as the center of abolitionism in the United States, remind us that abolitionism was not supported by many Northerners and in many ways was a marginal position. Um, so when abolitionists did their work, published their newspapers, gave lectures, they were doing so at extreme risk to themselves. Pennsylvania is also associated with the Underground Railroad. And this is a story that I think many of us Americans are familiar with. Um, so the Underground Railroad refers to the network of safe houses by which enslaved people escaped to free territories. Um, so they would escape to places like Philadelphia, to places that had abolished slavery like Canada or Mexico um, and seek freedom. So some of these individuals who escaped from slavery on the Underground Railroad um, risked their lives to spread information about the horrors of slavery. And perhaps the best known fugitive from slavery uh, from this era is Frederick Douglass. 
Frederick Douglass is an important orator, abolitionist, women's suffrage advocate, civil rights advocate, uh, who was born enslaved in Maryland. And he escaped from slavery in 1838 with the help of his wife, Anna Murray Douglas, who was a free woman. Um, and she was a free woman who provided him with a uniform, which he then used to escape from slavery with. So he disguised himself. Douglas is known for giving a lot of speeches about his experiences as an enslaved man and his fight for freedom. He's also known for his three autobiographies, the first of which was published in 1845, Narrative in the Life of Frederick Douglass, in which Douglas lays bearer the violence and terror of slavery in the United States. And it's through his narrative and through his orations and discussions of his experiences as an enslaved man that encourages some white Americans, particularly in the North, to oppose the institution of slavery. So formerly enslaved people or fugitives from slavery talking about their experiences, giving that first person account, is what convinces a lot of more moderate Northerners to start to support the anti-slavery cause. Of course, there's other individuals like, um, like Douglas who are involved with the Underground Railroad or with escaping slavery. William Still is one of the most important figures when we're talking about the Underground Railroad in Pennsylvania. William Still helped over 700 enslaved people escape um, to get their freedom. And notably, he recorded their names in his documents. So he kept a ledger um, with the names of the individuals that he helped escape from slavery. And his office uh, operated as a kind of information center that helped people who fled from slavery reunite with family members who had also run away, sometimes years prior. He was a close collaborator with somebody else very much associated with the Underground Railroad, Harriet Tubman. So Still's story is quite remarkable. His father had been able to free himself, uh, though Still's mother was enslaved. Uh, Still's mother ran away with two of her youngest children um, to seek freedom. Unfortunately, she had to leave two of her children behind. When she arrived in New Jersey, after she ran away, she gave birth to William Still. Um, so he was born into freedom. And William Still was working in his office, and he came across a man one day in his office who told him his story of escaping from slavery. And from listening to this story, William still began to realize the man in front of him in the office was actually his brother, one of the brothers that his mother had been forced to leave behind when she fled her enslavement. Um, so really remarkable reunification of part of Still's family. Um, unfortunately, the other brother who had remained enslaved um, when their mother ran away died enslaved. He was whipped to death for leaving the plantation to visit his wife. Um, so still himself, like many of the people that came to his office, 
um, had known the horror and suffering uh, experienced by enslaved people. Harriet Tubman's story is probably better known in the United States. Uh, she, like Frederick Douglass, had been enslaved in Maryland and uh, emancipated herself. Um, there's a few other things about Tubman's life that don't get discussed as much as her involvement in the Underground Railroad. Tubman had suffered from a disability for most of her life. She had been hit in the head with a weight while she was an enslaved woman. Um, the weight had been thrown at another man and it hit her in the head. She suffered seizures for the rest of her life as a result of this injury. Um, so she escaped on the Underground Railroad to Pennsylvania. And she's really well known because she returned to Maryland routinely over the next decade and helped another 70 or so slaves escape from Maryland. Um, Tubman's also known for her work during the Civil War. Um, she was a spy, she was a nurse, um, and she planned and implemented the Combahee River Raid in South Carolina, in which she traveled into Confederate-held territory along the Combahee River to recruit enslaved people to fight for the United States. Um, she, as well as these 700 individuals who she convinced to escape the plantations and join with the U.S. troops, destroyed plantations along the river. Um, so it was a very successful um, military enterprise that Tubman orchestrated uh, and implemented. So all of these individuals that I've talked about um, over the course of, of the past few minutes were people who continued to be active even after slavery was abolished, or even after the beginning of the Civil War, I should say. During the 1850s, there's a number of significant political changes within the United States that lead to the coming of the Civil War. Um, in 1850, for instance, there's the Compromise of 1850, which led to the fear among Northerners of a Southern slave power in Washington and a fear that Southerners and slave owners had corrupted the federal government. There was significant anger and outrage about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which required citizens to assist in the return of fugitives from slaves. So suddenly it became even more dangerous to be a fugitive from slavery in Philadelphia than it had been before, because now everybody else in Philadelphia was compelled by this law to, to assist in the return of fugitives. Um, the Fugitive Slave Act, um, which was not the first act in the United States, there had been a Fugitive Slave Act on the books since 1793, but this new Fugitive Slave Act had more teeth than the previous one. Not only did it require citizens to assist in the return of fugitives, um, if somebody was, um, deemed to be a slave, they did not have to appear before a judge. Um, federal commissioners were appointed to enforce the act, and anyone who assisted in finding runaways 
um, could be compensated for doing so. Uh, similarly, anybody who assisted runaways um, who did not return them could be forced to pay $1,000 in fines or spend six months in prison. Um, the Fugitive Slave Act um, resulted in people who were legally free being taken into slavery, as well as fugitives who had escaped slavery being taken back in chains. In 1854 in Boston, this happened with a man named Anthony Burns, who had ran away from enslavement in Virginia, owned a store in Boston, um, and slave catchers eventually found him in Boston. He was dragged to prison in chains. Um, a mob gathered outside of the Boston jail to demand his release. Um, in the process, a deputy U.S. Marshal was shot. Um, Boston was placed under martial law and the military had to be sent in. Burns was taken from this Boston prison to Virginia. Later on, abolitionists paid $1,300 to purchase his freedom, but the incident itself provoked outrage among Northerners and radicalized more white abolitionists who had been moderate beforehand. So as I mentioned, many of these abolitionists like Harriet Tubman continued their work during the Civil War. Um, the same networks that had supported free Black communities and fugitives from enslavement mobilized to support the war effort. The war created many refugees as enslaved people sought their freedom. Um, and many of the same family networks and community networks that had been active um, during the abolitionist movement continued to fight for civil rights for African Americans during and after the war. Charlotte Fortin Grimke is a good example of one of these individuals, and as you can probably guess based on her name, she was part of that Philadelphia Fortin family that was part of the Black middle class. Her grandfather was the sailmaker James Fortin, and her aunts were the founders of the Pennsylvania Female Anti-Slavery Society. Charlotte Fortin later married Francis James Grimke, who was the enslaved nephew of Sarah and Angelina Grimke from South Carolina, the two white abolitionist sisters. Their brother had fathered children with an enslaved woman, uh, and Francis James Grimke was one of these children. So Charlotte Fortin Grimke um, was educated as a teacher, um, she had been part of an anti-slavery society in Salem, Massachusetts. She had known the leading abolitionists and people like Garrison, in addition to her own family members. And during the war, she went to Beaufort, South Carolina, to establish a school for some of these refugees from slavery. And this Beaufort, South Carolina and the South Carolina Sea Islands um, hosted what was known as the Port Royal Experiment, in which freed people established schools, established civic organizations. In many ways, it was a rehearsal for Reconstruction, which followed after the Civil War. So again, Charlotte Fortin Grimke had been educated by these abolitionists, had been part of that movement, and then during and after the war and after the abolition of slavery with the 13th Amendment, continues those same strategies, that same kind of community organizing to fight for civil rights, um, even after the abolition of slavery.